please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 20. To Luke chapter 20. As we will focus this morning on verses 19 through 26 in Luke chapter 20. Read along with me there. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray for God to direct our minds and hearts now. Bow with me. Father, this is your eternal, inerrant, inspired word. You, Lord, by your sovereign grace have seen that every word has been preserved just as it is that we may have it here today. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would illumine our minds and hearts, that you would guide us in the path of righteousness that is set before us in your truth. That especially, Lord, as we are here in the Gospel of Luke, that you would draw our hearts near to Christ. That, Lord, as we behold Him here, as we hear the story of how His divine wisdom was on display, that, Lord, it would cause our hearts to cherish Him more deeply. That in cherishing Him more deeply, Lord, we would fight more diligently against our remaining sin. That we would engage in the battle for holiness. And that we would be a people who likewise manifest the wisdom of our Savior before the world that is so deeply in need of the gospel. Lead us now in truth, Father God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, one of the things I really enjoy from time to time is is being able to watch apologetics videos. I particularly appreciate those apologists, those Christian apologists who will go on to college campuses and in open forums, they'll answer questions and engage real issues, staying true to the faith, staying true to scripture while still answering the hard questions that our secular society brings against the Christian faith, even the accusations that they have against those of us who are in the faith. It's always a blessing when I see those persons respond to those hard questions and even those accusations with wisdom and grace and clear scriptural truth. But when I look at those videos, and especially when I come to texts like we're in this morning, I'm reminded that even the best apologists or the best pastors or the best theologians among us, none of us can hold a candle to Christ. We especially see this during this time during Passion Week. 
as over and over again, we see the religious leaders, the religious authorities coming to test Jesus, trying to catch him in his words, trying to pose something to him that will ruin his credibility or get him arrested by the Roman authorities. And so they keep engaging him in this verbal chess match in order to trap him and to undermine his ministry. And over and over again, we just see those persons end up looking like fools. Because Christ has a wisdom that cannot be matched. Even as I say that, I ask it as a question to you this morning, brothers and sisters. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ has a wisdom that transcends all human experience? A wisdom that applies to you better than any way you might think about yourself or think about this world. Because if we truly believe that, then the desire of our hearts will be to walk in the very wisdom of Christ. We're going to look at this passage in just two points this morning. So we're going to consider first the disgraceful scheming of hard-hearted men. The disgraceful scheming of hard-hearted men. You know, it's certainly no secret by this point in time that the religious leaders had disliked and even hated Jesus for a significant period. We have seen numerous references to their disdain in the Gospel of Luke, and it's frequent in the other Gospels as well. So many times we see it mentioned that the religious leaders wanted to trap him. They wanted to seize him. They were plotting about how to arrest him. They were seeking how to kill him. And a couple of times we see that they were very close to even stoning him. So the anger that we see experienced here had been building for some time. We look at verse 19, and we see that when Jesus finished the parable we looked at last week, the parable of the landowner and the rebellious tenants, when they heard this, they understood that it was against them, and their anger was ramped. They wanted to lay hands on him and get rid of Jesus right then and there. Jesus was openly accusing them of hypocrisy and rebellion towards God while the temple was crowded with people during one of the most important Jewish holiday observances of the whole year, Passover. In their minds, they absolutely had to take action before their authority over the people was irreparably harmed. What stopped them? Their fear of the people, it says here in verse 19. Most of the people thought that Jesus was a prophet and perhaps even the Messiah. And so if the religious leaders tried to arrest him at this time, the people would literally riot. Therefore, the religious authorities either had to find a way to discredit him in the eyes of the people, or they had to find a way to get the Roman government to do their dirty work. The Roman government had more than enough troops to put down a riot, and the people would not go against Rome out of fear for their lives. And so that's what the religious leaders did. Look at verse 20. They watched him. They were keeping an eye on him. They sent spies you know, they found people who, who were obedient to themselves, who would, you know, kind of dress in plain clothes and go hang around those people that were sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere in order to catch him in something he said to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the Roman governor. They were thus attempting a little bit of a different strategy. They wanted to devise a way to make Jesus incriminate himself with his own words. Again, the people were drawn to him because of his authoritative preaching and teaching, because of his miraculous abilities. If, he, if Jesus had something to say, then he said it without fear of reprisal from any earthly authority. It was this very characteristic of his teaching ministry that the religious leaders hoped to use against him. 
Just as John the Baptist had incurred the wrath of Herod, they hoped Jesus would incur the wrath of Rome. And this means that they had to think of just the right question. A question that would put him in the place of either angering the Roman authorities or angering the people. And so they gave concentrated effort to this, and finally they got it. They got it. They decided what they were going to ask Jesus, and probably they wouldn't want to create suspicion by all of them going to Jesus to ask this question, so they likely sent a small group from the Sanhedrin, and they went. And look at verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, we would look at verse 21 and we say, obviously, they're trying to butter him up here, right? Every word they spoke about Jesus was true. Jesus was absolutely truthful, speaking and teaching rightly. He deferred to no man and was not partial to any man. He stood his ground and taught the will of God, no matter who it angered or threatened. However, even though everything they said was perfectly true, we know that they didn't believe a word of it. Not a word. Though everything they said was accurate, from their lips, it was all lies. This was just a bunch of hypocritical flattery that was intended to appeal to his pride and lower his guard. And so, after having set him up with such flattery, they laid their trap. They said to him, verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And if we stop and think about this for a moment in the historical context, this was an absolutely diabolical question. They're asking if it's lawful, and we, don't, we want to understand they don't mean in accordance with civil law. Of course, according to civil law, it was right to pay taxes to Rome. Rome was master over them right now. They are asking a theological question. They are asking Jesus, Jesus, is it permissible or is it right in God's eyes for us to pay this tribute to Caesar. And the tribute that they're referring to here truly was a tribute. It was also called the poll tax. The poll tax was collected from every single Jew every year, which is why some Jews called it the head tax. This is why Rome periodically took a census of Israel, the one which required Mary and Joseph to go back to Bethlehem when Jesus was being born. They periodically did a census like that because they wanted to know the precise population so that they could collect all the necessary taxes. And the amount of the tax was one denarius, one day's wage per person. Now the Jews did pay other taxes to Rome. They paid a land tax, you know, from their grain and wine and oil that was produced annually. They did pay an income tax they did pay also a customs tax. Anytime merchandise and other goods came into the country or traveled on the roads, there were tax collectors that collected those custom taxes. And all of these various taxes supported the Roman troops and officials, and they provided things like peace and protection through the Pax Romana, as well as an unrivaled system of roads and aqueducts. But even though the Jews benefited from how some of these taxes were used, they still resented having to pay for Rome's occupation of their country. And though the poll tax was, was not the most costly tax, it was the one that the Jews hated most. And here's why. This is why the Jews hated this particular tax more than any other. Because this tax went directly to the emperor of Rome and it was understood to be a tribute to Caesar. 
That is why they referred to it here as a tribute. It was the primary mark of their subjugation to a pagan emperor who viewed himself as a god. And this is, a, this is a, very, a very tense subject in Israel at this time. Just about 20, 25 years earlier, there had been a revolt and an insurrection of the Jewish people against the Roman government as the Jewish zealots led this revolt against paying this specific tax. And so this tax was a very touchy subject to Romans, and it was a very touchy subject to the Jews, but for different reasons. And so you can see now why the religious leaders had devised this particular question to trap Jesus. The vast majority of Jews hated the poll tax. They only paid it because they were forced to pay it. Most of them viewed the tax as a tribute to a false god in the person of Caesar. And so given this understanding, the question more accurately is stated, Jesus, is it permissible for the people of God to express allegiance to a pagan emperor through the paying of this tax? That's the question they were asking. If Jesus said yes, that this tax was lawful in God's eyes, then the multitudes who had admired him up to this point would reject and despise him as someone who was taking the side of Rome and encouraging them to pay tribute to a false god. And without the support of the crowds, the religious leaders would be free to arrest Jesus without interference. If Jesus said no, that the tax was not lawful in God's eyes, then the religious leaders would quickly accuse him of treason against Rome. They would report him to the Roman governor who would have him arrested and executed as an insurrectionist. The leaders, you can just picture them craftily behind the scenes. We've got them. We have the perfect question. He's going to get it now, right? But their attitude, what they thought was a win-win situation for them, was just further proof of their spiritual blindness. They could not see that they were attempting to outsmart and ensnare the omnipotent Lord of the universe. Can you just imagine the pride that's involved going and, and saying, I've got a question that's going to stump God. Now, they didn't think that Jesus was God. But that's exactly the kind of pride they had in their hearts. You know, the Bible warns us all over the place about the foolishness of man and the peril of worldly wisdom. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Romans 1, 21 and 22 says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's all the human race, not just the Jews. 1 Corinthians 1, 20, God says through the Apostle Paul, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. We look around ourselves today, brothers and sisters, and we see the same thing going on. Sinful men and women continue these same tactics today. The wise men, the learned men, the academicians of our secular culture, they believe that they have, they have all but destroyed God based on the, just the logic of their arguments. They believe they have painted God into a corner. They contend that the Bible is an outdated book of patriarchy, subju subjugation, and moral oppression. 
They are bitter and hostile towards the, the, the idea of human sinfulness and our need for salvation. They are self-centered and ambitious about advancing a perverted sexual revolution and a perverted gender revolution. But God is not threatened by them. You know, we look around ourselves and we say, our culture is on the way to the gates of hell. But make no mistake, God is not threatened by what is going on in American culture right now. Psalm 37, verses 12 through 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. God will judge every single human being who has ever or will ever live. And in case you don't know this as you sit here this morning, I want to affirm to you on all the authority of Scripture, God will have the last word. In terms of how this applies to us as believers, though, I want us to back up a little in the text. I would want us to see the great danger of hidden haughtiness and pride in our own hearts. Think about this. In this text, we here see a very religious people pretending to be sincere, pretending to respect and admire Christ, pretending to value God's truth and the Savior's truthfulness. But all it is is a performance masking a cancerous pride. They're saying all the right things about the Savior, but they don't believe a word of it. They did not revere Christ. They were seeking his downfall. And brothers and sisters, I would have us look at this and understand that, that we, even as Christians, are not immune to this type of hypocrisy. Do you ever stop to think that we too can become very comfortable performing an outward Christianity? We can become very talented in the way we present ourselves because we want the world and our circles of family and friends and our church friends to think that we're great and we're genuine when we're really, in our hearts, hypocrites. Hiding our own pride, refusing to change, refusing to repent of our secret sins, refusing to humble and submit ourselves to the Savior who is perfectly wise and abundantly compassionate. And sadly, you know, we live in a day and time where in our social media-driven world, we are aided in this by, you know, by those social media platforms and our devices. You know, when I'm putting what I want out there on Instagram and, and Facebook and all those different places, I put forward the best of myself, how everything is going right in my life, how everything looks so good. Oh, don't you want to be me right now? When in reality... When in reality, our soul is a desert because we're not feasting on Scripture or spending time in prayer. When in reality, we are inwardly a wreck with insecurities and pride. When in reality, even though we're presenting a good front, we're out there indulging our lust, indulging our materialism and greed, indulging our apathy. You know what the good news is, brothers and sisters? Christ knows the real you. Not just what you put out there on social media. 
He knows the real you. And even though you're so messed up, if you are his child, he hasn't left you yet. Indeed, he promises he will not leave you at all. You have a Savior who knows your deepest and most innermost struggles, the things you hide from everyone else in your life. He knows you. He watches you in those secret moments that you think are hidden from everybody else. And he intercedes for you if you are his. He prays for you. He pleads your case before the Holy Father in heaven. He stands in your stead as your atoning sacrifice. He is patient and loving, and he is not patient and loving so that you can continue to indulge your sinfulness. He is patient and loving that he may lead you to repentance. And you know what? Oftentimes he'll use suffering and trial to break you and bring you to that place of repentance. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't hide don't feel like you're hiding because in actuality you can never hide from your Lord. He knows your heart. Run from the hypocrisy that is a cancer in your soul. Come into the light. One of the things that keeps it, that hinders fellowship in the church is when we're all trying to put forward that good front like we've got it all together. Uh, my marriage is okay. My parenting is okay. You know, sure, I sin like everybody else. You know, we say the right thing outwardly. But when it comes right down to it, we become very talented at putting on masks and building up walls around our lives so that no one knows. And brothers and sisters, that is... That is such a detrimental thing because Christ means for us to experience his grace and love and accountability and encouragement through the body of Christ. You are cutting yourself off from the very fountain of grace that you need most during your time of trial. Christ knows. Come into the light. Watch how he responds with grace and mercy and healing. That takes me to my second point, the divine wisdom of the Lord of all the earth. My second point, the divine wisdom of the Lord of all the earth. We see that the flattery of these hypocrites had no effect on Jesus. We look in verse 23 and it says, he perceived their craftiness. The word perceive there means to know deeply or thoroughly. And craftiness is just another word for cunning. Jesus knew exactly who they were and exactly what they were trying to do. And, and truth be told, anyone in that crowd that day would have probably picked up on the insincerity and hypocrisy of the religious leaders. But Jesus himself knows the heart of man. John 2, 23 through 25, it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's also why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. So Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their craftiness. And do you know what he could have done here? When they brought this question to him in front of the multitudes, he could have just dismissed them. He could have just said, I'm not going to answer your question. Remember, he did that earlier. They came to him with a question about whose authority he did these things by. And he said, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. They wouldn't answer his question. And so he said, I'm not going to answer yours. He could have looked at them right here, right now and said, I'm not answering your question. Get away from me. 
He was under no obligation. But Jesus decided to answer it. In his sovereign omniscience, he knew that this question, though asked deceptively, was an opportunity to teach the truth. And so he said, verse 24, show me a denarius. Now, Jesus, don't you have pockets? You know, couldn't you produce? No, Jesus and his disciples operated from a common money purse that was held by Judas. So Jesus did not carry money on himself. An interesting thing to note here, though, is that most Jews also did not carry a Roman denarii as a rule because it was defensive. It was offensive to them. You see, at the time of Christ, the Roman denarius would have been a silver coin, and on one side, it would have a profile of the emperor Tiberius, and underneath that profile was inscribed in Greek letters, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin was a picture of Tiberius sitting on his throne in all his royal robes. And underneath that, that picture on that side of the coin was inscribed the word in Greek, words in Greek letters, Pontifex, Ma, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. And so even holding a Roman denarii was, was offensive to the Jews. Number one, because it claimed divinity for a mere man. Number two, because it bore the image of a man claiming divinity, which was therefore a graven image and breaking the commandments of God. And number three, because it assigned to the same sinful man the title of high priest. In fact, this coin was so offensive that the Roman government, out of deference to the Jews, allowed coins without those features to be used for common commerce in Israel. However... As a forcible reminder of their power and authority, they made the Jewish people once a year pay the poll tax with a Roman denarius. So Jesus asked to see one. Matthew's account tells us that there were some Herodians. Herodians were Jews that were loyal to Rome. That there were some Herodians in the crowd. They would have had no problem carrying this kind of money. And so likely one of the Herodians held up this coin. And Jesus said in verse 24, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And then in what is perhaps the most simple and yet the most masterful reply of his earthly ministry, Jesus said to them, verse 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now let's talk about the two halves of that, that, that reply. There are two very profound truths that flow from this statement. First, the word render is significant. It's a Greek term that means to give back, that that it's a debt. It carries the idea of an obligation that is not optional. Biblically, Jesus was saying that we are obligated to give back to Caesar what is his in the form of a tax. And with this answer, Jesus reframes the question in a way that reflects a major development in redemptive history. You see, up to this time, in virtually every culture, there was an inseparable link between civic and religious obligations. The Jews, if you look back in the Old Testament, were theocratic. That meant the Jewish nation believed that God was their ruler. He was the head of the church and state. As an unconquered people before all this time, they viewed the paying of their taxes and tithes as a service unto God. But now, even as a conquered people, they still had that theocratic perspective. They felt that paying taxes to a pagan emperor who claimed divinity was a betrayal of their faith. That's why the zealots fought against this tax. 
and the threat of extreme force is the only thing that could make them pay it. But the pagan governments were no different. It was not only Jewish monotheism that linked religion, religion and state. Pagan governments insisted even more strongly in that unity of religion and state. If you look back in the book of Daniel, you see that King Nebuchadnezzar insisted that worshiping him was the civic duty of every person in his kingdom in Babylon. Rome was no different. In Rome, every Roman citizen was required to affirm that Caesar was a god. It was the same for everybody. And so that's what makes this statement by Jesus so amazing. With this single statement, Jesus is breaking all of that down. He's separating the two. He's effectively saying that paying a tax to a pagan authority is neither an expression of worship nor an act of apostasy. Responsibilities to the state can be separated from responsibilities to the faith. Again, as the Messiah, Jesus did not come to bring instant political independence from Rome. Rather, the kingdom that Jesus was building was a spiritual kingdom. His children were to render to their earthly authority whatever belonged to that earthly authority, while at the same time never turning from the obligation to obey and honor God. Now, in doing this, Jesus was not rigidly dividing the sacred and the secular. Rather, Jesus was teaching them that the secular aspects of life occupy a proper place within the overriding claims of the sacred. To state it another way, we are to serve and honor God first as the greatest priority of our lives, trusting everything to him. And in doing this, we will acknowledge and honor the authorities that he has placed over us. We will realize that being a faithful Christian includes being a faithful citizen. If the requirements of the state are in opposition to the requirements of God, then we must first honor God. There's no question about that. But otherwise, we are called to honor and submit to earthly authority and pay our taxes, as it says in Romans 13. Because we know that all authority originates from and is established by God. Thus, we must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, we may think, we may think that there are reasons for us not to honor the state. Remember the context in which Jesus was speaking. We would think that even looking at his situation. The Jewish religious authorities were blasphemous murderers. The Roman authorities were harsh pagan idolaters. There is no doubt that the taxes that were being paid to Rome were going to be used for any number of ungodly, immoral pursuits. And the Romans who received this very poll tax that Jesus says to render unto Caesar, just a few days from now, they were going to kill him on a Roman cross. Later, during times of persecution, the Romans would continue to brutally torture and execute Christians. But hear this. Human corruption does not nullify our obligation to human authority. Human corruption does not nullify our obligation to human authority. We are bound by divine law to obey human law except where it would cause us to directly disobey God. Again, if a human law causes us to directly disobey God. If our, if our government came and said, you may no longer gather as a church on Sundays, period. We're abolishing the church. Sorry, we have to obey God rather than men. 
If our government would do something that would put us in direct disobedience to our Lord, we must follow God, not men. But otherwise, we're to pay our taxes and honor the authority placed over us because all authority, as it says in Romans 13, is established by God. Now, the second profound truth that we are li- is that we are likewise under obligation to render unto God the things that are God's. So, okay, Pastor Sean, we get it. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But the other part of this is that we're to render to God the things that are God's. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about this with me. What bears God's likeness and inscription? You do. You bear God's likeness and inscription. From the very beginning, God's word teaches us that we are all made in the image and likeness of God, and his people also bear his inscription. In Exodus 28, we see that the high priest of Israel wore a golden plate on his turban engraved with the words, holy to the Lord, as he represented the people. Fifteen times in the Old Testament, as well as in Acts chapter 15, verse 17, the word of God says that we are called by his name. He has set his name upon us. And in Revelation 22.4, it says that one day when we are in glorified bodies in the presence of the Lord for all eternity, we shall see his face and his name will be inscribed on our foreheads. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian here today, you bear the inscription of God. And therefore, everything we are, everything we have, everything we do, everything we shall ever be is to be rendered unto God as tribute to his glory, his honor, his praise, his adoration. And so, how about you? Are you rendering unto God the things that are God's? As his child, made in his image, redeemed by his Son, and indwelt by his Holy Spirit, are you rendering him your love? Are you loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, treasuring him as your almighty Savior above anything else in this world? Are you rendering him your intellect? Are you taking every thought captive to Christ and being transformed by the renewing of your mind through the study of Scripture? Are you rendering unto God your will, submitting yourself to his law and walking in the truth by a strong faith in his gospel promises? Are you rendering unto your Lord your heart, abiding in him as his spirit abides in you, cherishing him above any other earthly thing or earthly relationship? Are you rendering to him the best of your time or just the leftovers? Are you rendering him the first fruits of your income and your finances or just the leftovers? Are you rendering unto Christ the fullness of your gifts and talents? Or just the leftovers? In sum, is your life lived for him or is it lived for you? You know, John Piper had an amazing quote about this passage. He said, everything is God's. And when you have surrendered everything to God, then you will be in a position of rendering obedience to Caesar without committing treason against heaven. Let me say that again. Everything is God's. And when you have surrendered everything to God, then you will be in a position of rendering obedience to Caesar without committing treason against heaven. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the high calling of living for Christ. Again, so many times, even as Christians, there are other things that can creep into our affections. There are other things that we can begin to put before our Lord. There are things that steal away our love for Jesus Christ. And those seeds that creep into our lives, they get planted in our soul and they grow and then they begin to bloom into full-blown outward sin. By the grace of Christ, we need to acknowledge, we need to remember, we need to come back to the truth that we have a new heart that is given to us by Christ and that new heart came with new desires. We have His Holy Spirit to empower us to love Him first and walk in obedience. And His grace is a continual wave that washes over us. How many of us have been to the beach, right? That's a popular thing to do over the summer, over the 4th of July weekend. Well, not lately if you're going to Panama City. People are dying there, but you know. But we, we love to go out in the ocean. And one of the things we enjoy about the ocean is just, you know, the, the gentleness being in the water. And, and we know when we're standing in the ocean, there's just a continual wave after wave after wave. It's all day. It's all night. It's because of the moon and the gravitational pulse forces that are pulling on the oceans of the earth. And, and it just never, ever stops. Do you understand, believer, that even when you fall short, even when you struggle, even when you fail to render unto God the things that are God's, there's a continual wash of the grace of Christ. It's never-ending. He has purchased you for himself. He has purchased his own grace for you. And again, that's not the, so you can remain in your disobedience and presume upon the grace of Christ, but that grace washes over you continually so that you will see by the patience and compassion and mercy of Christ that he is better than that of the world which you've chosen. When we render unto self rather than unto God, we have the mercy of Christ to know that he will hear our confession, he will cleanse our hearts, he will restore us to a path of righteousness, all for his name's sake. All glory be to Christ. Amen? So brother, sister, there's no excuse for not rendering unto God the things that are God's. All that you are. We see in verse 26 of our text that the religious leaders and the people marveled in awe at his answer. It says, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. So they lost. They failed. They didn't paint him into a corner as they thought they would. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. You know that one of those songs we sing, how sweet and awful is the place. I know in our our context, awful, means something bad. But in that 300-year-old song, it means full of awe. These religious leaders were brought, even in their hardness of heart, to a place where they had to marvel, where they were left in awe at the wisdom of the Son of God. They learned that day once again that they were truly in the presence of unassailable wisdom. May we, brothers and sisters, walk in that wisdom. The wisdom of the world leads to death. The wisdom of God is righteousness and life. And Christ is that fount of wisdom for us.